Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. The Air Force is currently in a period of transition, with its combat aircraft inventory evolving from a fourth-gen force to one increasingly fifth generation. After years of talking about aircraft like the F-35, F-22, and the B-21, the Air Force is finally seeing production quantities increasingly tip the scales of what's populating its ramps around the globe. And trust me, we have got a lot more work to do to grow those fifth-gen numbers, but the trend lines clearly exist as more and more units retire their legacy aircraft and strap into new ones. And today, that's mainly driven by the F-35. We all know that the Air Force bought too few F-22s, which is why we have F-15Cs and F-15Ds still flying that are nearly four decades old and are structurally exhausted, not to mention increasingly irrelevant against modern threats. So it's been left to the F-35 to pick up where the Raptor left off and to help modernize the force. The B-21 will also join these ranks in short order, as well as the next generation air dominant system, which is the next air superiority aircraft. So that's the focus of today's episode. We're going to talk about this transition and what it means from a pilot perspective. As you know, Mitchell Institute always has active duty Air Force officers assigned to our team each year, which is absolutely incredible. It really allows us to gain insight regarding what's occurring at an operational level, not just what's happening in Washington, D.C. In this year, we are extremely fortunate to have two fighter pilots who span this evolutionary path that we are discussing. Lieutenant Colonel Max Cover, callsign Ephes, began his career in the F-16 and later transitioned to the F-35. We've also got Lieutenant Colonel Gary Glojic, callsign Plugger, who is a highly experienced A-10 pilot. FS Plugger, it is awesome to have you guys with us today. Hey, thank you, Slick. It's a pleasure to be here with Mitchell and the podcast team. If I can just give a quick disclaimer up front, these are my personal thoughts, and these thoughts and comments here today are not representative of the United States Air Force. Thanks, Slick. I'm excited to be here and same as episode. All right. So with that, uh, I really would love for you guys to just walk the audience through your careers. When did you earn your wings? What was your operational flying career and what's it looked like so far? So Plugger, let's get started with you and then we'll go to Ephes. For sure. So I completed pilot training in 2007, became a first assignment instructor pilot. So that means I stayed at my pilot training base, instructed for about three years before I transitioned to the A-10. And that was in 2011. So as I was completing my first assignment, I had an awesome commander at the time, Sax Mathis, and he was an Eagle pilot. And I remember him saying, I know you really like flying jets and the last couple of jets out there that you can really go out and manhandle and fly are the Hog and the Eagle. So I think what you need to decide is whether you want to do the air to air fight or you want to be an air to ground pilot. And I'd kind of already decided that I wanted to be an air to ground pilot as the primary focus. So I picked the Hog. After completing IFF in, in the A-10B course, I went straight out to Korea for my first assignment. Uh, I started there as a wingman in Korea, and then after about a year, I upgraded to being a flight lead before I left. Korea is a pretty unique experience because you get to 
train in that same airspace where you'd potentially fight. And you get to train with the squadrons and the coalition partners that you'd fight with uh, if you had to. After Korea, I PCS to Moody uh, and then left right away on a deployment to Afghanistan. Came back to Moody and then went through the forward air controller and instructor and evaluator upgrades before going back to Korea for another assignment. Uh, I was there for a couple more years, became a mission commander, instructed, evaluated, worked at the wing a little bit, doing exercise planning, and then came back to DM. So you can see the, the trend there, a lot of back and forth from DM and Moody in Korea. But once I was back at Davis Mountain, we started seriously talking about agile combat employment. I left for a year to go to school and then was lucky enough to come back and be the director of operations of the operational support squadron and then commanded the Bulldogs before coming out here to Mitchell. So I've been fortunate to fly in a lot of places across the Pacific from the South China Sea all the way up to Alaska to deploy and to go to lots of flag exercises over those five operational assignments. And I'm most thankful for building the relationships with the soft community, the TACP community, the rescue community, and then the rest of the combat air forces. For me, I'm a ROTC graduate out of Montana State University, Bozeman. And I graduated in 2005, where I got my commissioning. From ROTC, I went through a pilot training program called Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training. And that's where you get to train with your NATO ally partners and go through about a year and a half worth of training in the T-37, T-38, and building those fundamentals of airmanship and how to fly for the Air Force. There's a pivotal milestone towards the end of that training called drop night. And that's what every student gets to look forward to and put down a, a dream sheet, if you will. You list your top three assignment choices in terms of what aircraft you want to fly. For me, there was no fifth gen option. There was no F-22 or F-35 available for drop night during that period when I was about to get my wings. And I really wanted to do multiple mission sets. And that's why I put in for the F-16. It was a single seat, multi-role aircraft, highly formidable in any dogfight arena. And it's an awesome aircraft. So put that down as my number one. Didn't think I was going to get it. I was fortunate enough to get it. And that's where I went off to the races. So that took me to Luke Air Force Base, where I learned to fly the F-16. And leaving that schoolhouse, you're basically a brand new combat wingman, if you will. My first operational assignment was in Europe. That was a three-year period where I flew the Block 50 F-16. And that's a mission set where you focus and specialize on suppression of enemy air defense systems. And we call that SEED. We had multiple TDYs during that period. And just like everyone else, I imagine we had the CENTCOM deployment in the Middle East. And it was during that time where it was an AEF-style rotation bucket. So you kind of knew when you were going to be in queue to deploy and go conduct close air support combat operations. But outside of that, while you're in garrison and sometimes TDY, you train for the best high-end fight you can with your platform. And that was for us doing seed. Out of Germany, I shifted west. I wanted to take my experiences and what I learned at that first assignment and go try and teach a larger construct of operations. I want to be an aggressor. And being a Montana native, I love the outdoors, I love the mountains, I love the snow season. And so I spent the next three years in the Pacific and learned to replicate and teach the aggressor mission to provide realistic adversarial support to our combat air forces, our partners, and our allies. 
And that was by far probably the funnest assignment I've ever had. The flying in the J Park in Alaska was unreal. And watching units, both our own combat Air Force units and our partners show up and get training in a large force exercise construct and seeing that confidence build, seeing that lethality build through that 10-day training period was awesome. Extremely rewarding for me. I would have liked to have done that longer, but I was only able to do that for three years and was off back to the Block 50 seed mission operationally. So I went to Shaw Air Force Base under Air Combat Command next and spent a year in the 77th Fighter Squadron, double down. And after that, I fleed up to the group and I ran the standards and evaluation shop for the uh, operations group at Shaw. Did that for about a year. And then that assignment culminated for me on the 9th Air Force staff, still flying at Shaw and helping training and, and writing grade sheets there. That was kind of a pivotal role for me to stop flying the F-16. So about 10 years in total there. And then I spent two years as a student, uh, one year in the Marine Corps Command Staff College in Quantico, and then a follow-on year with the SAS program down at Maxwell Air Force Base. After two years of school is when I jumped into the F-35, so spent some time at Eglin, learned to fly the aircraft, and then pivoted towards Hill Air Force Base, which was the only operational wing flying the F-35. I spent a couple of years up front where I deployed, and one of those deployments, I was the director of operations of a fighter squadron, and then spent the last two years at Hill as a 388th OSS commander. Yeah, two epic careers, and really appreciate you sharing uh, with the audience your background. Now, can you describe the operating environments in which you grew up in? I mean, uh, I'm guessing you both had multiple deployments to uh, Central Command Region, uh, plus some other locations. And what did that mean from a threat environment perspective and the sorts of missions that you were asked to execute? You know, when I was a lieutenant and captain in my first operational unit, the operating environment for us was to be able to respond to a regional crisis, right? And being stationed in Europe, uh, that's where our focus was. And the mission set that we specialized in the Block 50 Viper was suppression of, of enemy air defense. And we also went TDY quite a bit, and that was primarily focused on building partnerships and strengthening ties with our allies as a coalition. When you spend your time in garrison and you train for a mission like SEED, it's a lot of work. You put in every rep, every set you can to be as lethal as you can. What was required of us for our, our combat deployments was supporting ground operations in the Middle East. And so when you spend months switching mission sets, a lot of the blocking and tackling of what you train to do can atrophy. So that was my operating environment starting out. Fast forward to when I left Hill Air Force Base in the F-35, my operating environment was vastly different. In a fifth gen fighter platform, you have to be able to respond to global crisis anytime, anywhere. And so that comes with it, a constant state of readiness and a mindset that you have to be able to go whenever and wherever and respond effectively. So it, it changed. For me going directly to Korea, that theater has a high quantity of older threats and we mostly mitigated those through integration with other assets on the peninsula and then a lot of mutual support within our flights. We had dense target sets, but when I first got there, there were not targeting pods on every jet. So as a wingman, 
Uh, I was flying without a targeting pod, employing primarily visually delivered non-precision weapons like Mark 82s. Uh, we did have precision Maverick missiles and we had the gun, of course, but think I need to visually acquire this target and then visually deliver the weapon on it. In Korea, you know, you're not as constrained by concerns about things like collateral damage, fratricide, cultural considerations. We were very focused on the very tangible mission of defending the freedom of the 51 million people in the Republic of Korea that we lived with. Going to Afghanistan, which again, I got back from Korea and pretty much immediately went to Afghanistan and had a notably different operational environment there. So a reduced threat. There are people shooting at you with AK-47s and PKMs, but that's also why we have titanium armor and redundant systems, and it's not really a credible threat uh, to our jet. But we were able to mitigate the threats there through our own on onboard systems and our tactics. We did a lot of non-traditional ISR, and so a lot of overwatch of convoys and forward operating bases and things. And then a lot of detailed integration with both the uh, Special Operations Forces and the Tactical Air Control Party Joint Terminal Attack Controllers. The employments there are often precision strikes on single targets, but moving targets and challenging terrain. And then there are endless collateral damage concerns to think about. It was either that or you're looking at troops in contact where you've got the friendlies that are probably taking effective fire and are in close proximity to the enemy. And so there, again, the precision strike is pretty key because uh, you want to minimize collateral damage. You want to mitigate fratricide. But fortunately, by this point, we have everybody has an advanced targeting pod. We have helmet-mounted queuing systems, GPS and laser-guided bombs, laser-guided Mavericks, and then, of course, still the gun. About that time, too, we have new combat search and rescue equipment getting in the jet. So special radios that are going to help us find and then communicate with isolated personnel if that were to happen. Kind of fast-forwarding to a large-scale combat operations type fight, what we call the LISCO fight. It's probably important to point out that we've always trained to increase threat fights, but as the CENTCOM commitments decreased, that just allows you more time to focus on those higher-end, higher-threat missions because you're not spinning up to go do the reduced threat kind of friendly overwatch or sometimes the non-traditional ISR type mission. So if you do have a theater with the advanced long-range strat SAMs or the highly mobile tactical SAMs, in the A-10 especially, but probably in any fourth-gen fighter, that's where you start looking at the essential nature of having a, a force package. So we need that air superiority team to mitigate the air-to-air -air threats and the surface-to-air threats down to whatever acceptable level of risk we get from the air component commander. Uh, some weapons and capability that we added also was multi-target capability, so where you can press the pickle button once and send six different weapons to six different targets which is really helpful. Small diameter bombs with a little bit more range, laser rockets for even more precision capability, and then we even started looking at miniature air launch decoys. So in the hog, we still bring the quantity of weapons, but with more range and more precision than we used to. So if I was to summarize all of that in the kind of transition over the last decade or so, even though we're flying jets that are older than everyone in the squadron, the sensors and the weapons and the tactics are not from the 70s or 80s or 90s. And I think we're far more lethal and survivable uh, than we were when the jet came out. So here's where your experiences diverge. FSU tracked the F-35 in 2018. So talk to us about what that was like. For me, jumping into an F-35 slick from an F-16 was not like upgrading from 
an iPhone 10 to an iPhone 15. It was like going from my college Motorola flip phone to an iPhone. Okay, so I'll talk you through briefly just what it was like for me on my first time flying one, if that helps. After we briefed up the mission, I went out to the flight line and I did my first walk around. And you're an F-16 pilot. When you've got thousands of reps of being used to seeing fuel tanks, pylons, weapons, stuff hanging on the wings, targeting pot, all that, there's nothing there. It is a clean aircraft. And that is the inherent design of stealth and, and, and what it can bring. And so just the stealth attributes of the aircraft immediately enables you the ability to go down roads that you would never go drive down in your prior vehicle, if that makes sense. What was most awesome flying that jet for the first time wasn't just the stealth. It was the massive amounts of data that was displayed to me through Fusion to where I could make decisions. And the current terminology that I've heard lately is, you know, sense, make sense, act. The jet gives you all that data. It's now the question is how capable are, are you, how, how capable is the gray matter to process and act on it? Because you've got it. That was the main leap for me that I spent the majority of my time at Hill while flying to get better at every day. Well, how did you see these attributes play out when you deployed? I deployed twice in the F-35. On a regular basis, we had lieutenants and captains flying thousands of miles in the F-35, and they're wearing multiple mission set hats. They were the ISR of the sky. They were the attack capability of the sky. They were the fighter capability of the sky when needed. They were the electronic attack capability of the sky when needed. And it, I used to actually joke to myself, after a combat sortie was complete, I'd get a debrief from the pilots when I was sitting top three, and I said, okay, which one of these categories of a mission set did you do today so I can log it? Were you primarily ISR? Were you strike platform? Were you flying intercepts? Were you, and it's the response that I would get would be yes. And so what I'm getting at is the F-35 is so much more than a fighter aircraft. The nomenclature of it could easily be an F-35, an E-35, an A-35, an R-35, just because of what it brings to the warfighter when it's flying. And the level of maturity and responsibility that those pilots had at such a young age that I, I never had growing up in the F-16, that increased level of situational awareness and their ability to make decisions airborne was amazing. Plugger, you're still in the A-10, but you and your teammates are charged with incredibly important missions and you're deploying all the time, all over the place. You're holding the line in Korea and there's certain missions, especially tied to CSAR, where the A-10 is fundamentally unique. So can you walk us through how the jet meets COCOM demands these days? Yes, like, so the A-10 is often synonymous with close air support, but we do a lot more than close air support and forward air control. You mentioned combat search and rescue. That's an area that we put a lot of focus in, and we often say that our heart is in CSAR, but we also do air interdiction, strike control and reconnaissance, a, a number of counter maritime missions. So there is a, a breadth of missions that we do train to. And yeah, the jet has some unique systems. We've got four radios, a couple of which can scan. We've got the 
combat search and rescue radio that is is amazing at helping to locate and then communicate with isolated personnel. And our avionics and our HOTAS, our hands-on throttle and stick system, so think like the 16 buttons with multiple directions to push each of those buttons, those are purposely designed for CAS and CSAR. And so it's really well integrated to the missions that we focus on. We bring a ton of weapons to the fight with the 50 rounds of 30 millimeter pods of laser rockets, plus plenty of precision direct attack munitions as well. But all of that's great. But I think the really important thing is the community and the depth of knowledge and the dedication to really the procedures and the tactics and techniques that go into flying close air support and combat search and rescue. Besides that, the relationships are really important. So when we often people say, how would this apply to a joint scenario or whatever, to us, just about every mission we fly is joint. We're supporting soft or tactical air control parties. So the JTACs from both those communities, we're out there with the rescue community flying with the HC-130s and the H-60s, working with PJs and Crows. Like that is what our community does. And we have very, very great relationships with those different communities that I think are really important. As you said, yeah, there's an A-10 squadron in Korea. There's an A-10 squadron deployed to CENTCOM right now. But really, regardless of where we go, I think it's important that we bring that depth of knowledge of precision attack and personnel recovery. And then we're able to carry through on those relationships that we've built over the years with the communities that we're going to fight with. So regardless of which theater you're in, I think the different mission is going to drive different levels of integration with the other communities whether we're killing targets or we're recovering isolated personnel. I've got to ask a question that I have to figure plays into the equation these days. And it's the idea of the sunset uh, of the airframe. And, you know, leaders have been vocal about it. And they're, they're saying that they need to retire the A-10, which if you're a pilot that can easily take that personal, you don't want to see uh, your baby retired. And, you know, it sounds like rejection uh, at the time you guys are trying to do your best to meet the COCOM demands around the globe. So... It also comes in the wake of being rock stars front and center over the last two decades. So as a squadron commander, how did you work through managing these dynamics? Yeah, it's a great question. So our community is truly passionate about uh, close air support and combat search and rescue. And, th and that's the focus of our training, right? But I think it's important to focus on the passion and the knowledge and the skill of those missions rather than the specific tool that you're using to execute those missions. So. General Goldfein, when he was the chief of staff of the Air Force, he came through one of the squadrons I was in. And what he told us is that he was far more worried about losing the A-10 community than he was losing the jet. So I think what I was focused on was preserving that deep knowledge in the close air support, forward air control, combat search and rescue in the pilots. So as we move them out into other places in the combat air forces, that knowledge and that expertise would remain. So we often go back to close air support over the, the history of aviation. The mission often transitions back to that. And I think there'll be a day when either because we're winning or because we're not fighting in the primary focus theater, that close air support will be important again. I mean, it's important now, but it'll be important because we've achieved air superiority and we're going to shift to that mission again. And I think that's going to be the day that uh, you probably have F-35 pilots with an A-10 background that are stepping up and saying, yep, I'm the one who can run this combat search and rescue mission. Yes, it's time for me to pull out the joint tactics, techniques, and procedures for close air support. And I'm going to lead this one and I'm going to teach the rest of the squadron and I'm going to keep that knowledge alive in the combat air forces. So 
the different missions are easier to focus on when you have a specific deployment on the books, right? And when you don't, you kind of focus on balancing readiness with, like for us, we were developing agile combat employment procedures and techniques and trying to work on operationalizing that concept, not just for our jet, but for the entire combat air forces. And then I was focused on prepping pilots who were going to transition, whether it was sooner or later. So to do that, I was taking the initiative to seize opportunities to increase the depth and the breadth of experience that they have. So doing exercises with the Army, with the Navy, SOF, with the Mobility Air Forces, doing as a combat employment, and then getting as much high-end integration training as we can at the green flag and red flag exercises. So really it was trying to get experiences and build those relationships because I want to teach those pilots how to think and not necessarily what to think. But if you're out there learning to solve tactical problems and building relationships across the joint force, even when you have different tactical problems, you'll have more exposure and you'll know how to think and how to solve those problems. And you'll be more ready for whatever you fly next. Well, this one is for you both. How do you see the missions evolving from fourth gen aircraft to fifth gen? I mean, we all know the idea of the A-10 and CAS and the unbelievable maneuverability of the F-16 in a close-in fight. So how do you see fifth-gen types netting similar effects, but recognizing how the mission is executed from a tactical perspective and, and how that may change? Yeah, Slick, that's a good question. I have the utmost respect for the A-10 and F-16 community and every fourth-gen fighter community. Back to your question, though, about knowing the idea of an a-10 able to do CAS, right? The first letter in CAS stands for close, right? And same goes for the F-16 comment of a close-in fight. It needs to be able to get close to fight. And don't get me wrong, anyone who's been on the receiving end of an F-16 in a training environment or an A-10 in a training environment or certainly a, a combat environment, it is a formidable effect that it can bring to the battle space but we need it to be able to get close and, and it needs to be able to operate in an environment where it can survive right so as that battle space continues to become more lethal every day and less permissive every day so will tactics techniques and how we employ and what we employ with will change all right, the thing I would add is that often the mission is going to be about the pilot as much as the airframe. I've been in a number of large force engagements where as an A-10 pilot, you're probably doing air interdiction or whatever mission, but you're probably also the personnel recovery functional team lead and the one who's kind of coming up with the backup plan if we are going to have to do personnel recovery or a combat search and rescue mission. And then that expertise is always in your mind. So I would be bummed if we had an LFE go in that didn't have one, someone with that expertise and that depth of knowledge that was prioritizing personnel recovery. So I think it's really important as we move forward into other airframes that we keep the depth of expertise in some of those other mission sets. And as jets like, whether it's the A-10 or the F-16 go away, that the skills that were learned there don't go away with that airframe. Now, what about the tactile impact? At Mitchell, we talk a lot about cost per effect and looking at what it takes to get the job done from an enterprise perspective versus the cost of individual weapons systems, absent of looking at mission effectiveness. And 
as I understand it, fifth gen is affording some very distinct benefits in that regard with a few of the new jets doing what it once took a dozen or more legacy types to achieve. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, Slick, another great question here. This, this is my personal opinion. Cost per effect to me is nothing new. And what I think you're asking is force packaging, right? When you go back to before World War II began and study the air war planning uh, division, the documents on how we plan to, to fight and win the war, we looked at how many bombs it would take to be required to hit a single target. And then we took that number and we walked backwards and we said, okay, how many bombs can fit in these bombers that we're building right now, right? Because it was still in concept. And then we developed the need, the requirement in terms of quantity for the bombers to carry those bombs to deliver effects, right? And that, that comes at a cost. And you, you, if you take that thread and you pull that forward all the way into Desert Storm, we saw that realized with the force packaging that would have been required in a single bomber mission in Europe to Desert Storm in time where stealth and PGMs came together and the force packaging that was required to strike a single target was vastly different than it was in World War II, right? So we pull that thread even further to today and we look at cost per effect and really force packaging. What can an F-35 do that minimizes the force packaging required for it to deliver effects? And so in my mind, that, that cost per effect piece, that, that's never changed since the beginning of our Air Force. We've always looked at ways and means to deliver effects at a least affordable cost that's decisive in the battle space. We've often heard this phrase, fifth gen makes fourth gen better, but I'm also assuming fourth gen might degrade fifth gen a bit given teaming and limiting factors. So what's your thoughts on that? You know, have we kind of seen any of this play out in the real world? I don't buy in or do I believe that fifth gen makes fourth gen better. But if I can rephrase that for you, I would say that I believe fourth gen makes fifth gen better for fourth gen. And if you'll allow me just a minute to explain what I mean by that. When I showed up at Hill, when I transitioned to the F-35 out of the F-16, I flew alongside aviators and warfighters from every fourth gen community. There were experts in the A-10, the Strike Eagle, the F-15C model, and the F-16. And so that was like a melting pot of subject matter experts. And that was important, and it was required to build the tactics and procedures and how an F-35 employs airborne and what makes it so lethal. That came from the fourth gen community. And that's important because when we started to onload fresh pilots that had no fourth gen experience, the younger communities fresh out of pilot training, that knowledge base was built into the F-35, the DNA of how it employs. And so these pilots that didn't previously grow up in a fourth gen combat aircraft, they know the why behind it. They know the why behind how an F-35 will employ as a team. And so it makes them that much more lethal and able to support any combat aircraft out there in the airspace. 
And Slick, as a fourth gen pilot, as the threat increases, you want the most capable platforms in your force package to make sure that we are doing the best suppression of enemy air defenses and offensive, defensive, counter air we can so that we have air superiority and can focus on the fight. I have definitely seen that some of the fifth gen platforms out there, F-35 in particular, are very capable at passing some of the older fighters' targets that they wouldn't have been able to find on their own. And that's really helpful as well. Yeah, and Slick, if I can give one more response to that, I think this is an important question because as the Air Force transitions and we start to modernize our fleet and we pivot towards combat collaborative aircraft and NGAD family of systems, I I can't imagine we're going to start with a fresh slate of how should this employ. So just how it, I mentioned earlier, I believe 4th Gen makes 5th Gen better for 4th Gen. We're going to see the same unfold for the next generation aircraft, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely makes perfect sense. And there's another aspect of the equation here. So what does it mean for the Air Force to cultivate and sustain more 5th Gen pilots? And you know, what are your thoughts on what it means for the pilot career field? And FS, you've lived it and Plugger, you're prepping your guys for this eventual transition. So love to hear your thoughts. I would say reps and sets, right? So I mentioned earlier, the biggest leap in transition for me was being able to think critically, more critically on the massive amounts of information that is displayed to you as a warfighter with what fifth generation brings to the fight. And that level of information, that processing power of the gray matter between the ears, that, that makes sense and act piece is the critical node that we need to continue to give our warfighters reps and sets. We need to continue to challenge them. We need to continue to push boundaries because that forces pilots, warfighters to think critically in moments and get some outside their comfort level. So as more capabilities, more technology enters the cockpit, they'll be more prepared for transition to fifth gen, eventually transition to sixth gen and what that brings. And Slick, from my perspective, I think it's really important for pilots to be good at the mission you're assigned now. So take every opportunity to solve tactical problems, take every opportunity to integrate with other communities, to learn their capabilities, and then, you know, if it's a big enough fight, we're all going to go. So it's important for every pilot in every airframe to be ready. And then the more that, I think I've said this before, and F has said it as well, like the more you can learn how to think, how to solve problems and do that while you're flying a jet, the better you're going to be once you get to whatever the airframe is. I think one of the things I told guys over the last couple of years, guys and girls in the squadron was, Back in the 60s, I think it was pretty normal for pilots to switch airframes, potentially every assignment for a few years there. So they would switch from airframe to airframe to airframe as newer, better, faster jets came out. I think in 2023, it is probably a bigger transition to another fighter than it was for a fighter pilot back in the 60s. And that's because it takes more time to become an expert in your weapon system because they are so much more capable. But still learning how to solve tactical problems, learning capabilities and learning how to integrate different airframes into one force package and employ together is really important to being ready to go to whatever other airframe you were assigned at some other point in your career. 
So FS, in that vein, you thought you'd share with the bomber pilots who are going to transition from Cold War types to the B-21. Uh, they're really going to see a major change regarding how they're able to fly and fight. That's a good question. Slick, when I transitioned to the F-35, yes, it was a capability that makes one more survivable. Yes, it provides more situational awareness on the battlefield. But what didn't change for me, really, is our job as airmen. When you go back throughout U.S. Air Force history, our job as combat aviators has always been to get to the target or to deliver decisive effects in the battle space. How we do that may change over time when newer capability gets fielded. But what we do as airmen, I believe, has really remained constant. It's our ability to not just think, but to think critically in the moments of fog and friction in both training and combat. That when you're flying a newer, more capable platform like the F-35 or eventually the B-21 or whatever it is, you're that much more lethal with it. And that only comes with intense training and really the ability to practice the way you want to fight tomorrow. Reps and sets that will force you to critically think your way through future problem sets is going to be key. I firmly believe, again, these are my personal thoughts, that the most dangerous combatant one can ever face on the field isn't just going to be the one with the latest and greatest hardware. It's instead going to be the warfighter that has both the hardware needed and also the mind that is versed in thousands of years of warfare history that can outthink you because of it. Our ability as airmen to critically think through tough situations, regardless of what we're flying, is what's going to continue to give us that competitive edge on the battlefield. Well, guys, as everybody knows, no one as uh, big a fan of fifth gen as, as Mitchell, but the reality is that modernization moves at the speed of money. And we talk about that often here on the Aerospace Advantage. And given the budget constraints, we're going to see fourth gen in the fleet for several more years and really well into the next decade at least. So talk to us about how you expect to see the missions evolve for types like the F-16 and others whose lives will be extended to sustain a baseline of Air Force capacity. Yeah, a quick response to that one is tactics and capability will continue to evolve with it. And F-16, that was batch one off the line in a frontline unit is vastly different from a F-16 in today's warfighter's hands. So as the threats evolve, capability will evolve with it. No, FS, you're exactly right. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we're going to see with fourth gen is really a tiered effect and they're going to be picking up a lot more of the heavy lifting of roles like homeland defense and things like that as they continue to stay in service but might find some challenges out on the battlefield that fifth gen is going to really have to pick up from a tactical perspective are there upgrades that you think that are going to be key for fourth gen aircraft that say in the inventory given that we're going to need them to stay as relevant as long as possible so if you had your your wish list of what you could put on some jets what, what would it be Yes, like I think we're always going to want more precision, longer range, better defenses against threats. And for those who are lucky enough to have a radar, I think they're probably going to want better radars, right? So I know it's pretty high level, but like better sensors, more precision, longer range, better communications, 
all of those things will make every jet and every asset we have, whether it's, you know, a 1970s designed fourth gen fighter or a sixth gen NGAD, all of those things are going to make us more lethal and more survivable and better to integrate and close kill chains. Yeah, really well said. And I agree. Uh, every platform that could have added precision, better communication, protection in the spectrum is really going to be helpful. So hopefully that they're we're able to squeeze life out of the remaining fourth gen that we're going to have to fly for a long time for the capacity. You know, which really brings me to the next thing to think about is what about the Pacific fight? Are there certain factors that are really going to change what it means to fly and fight no matter if you're fourth or fifth gen, either air, aircraft or pilots? And FS, I know you've been looking at the sortie duration and, and Plugger, you've lived out there in Korea. So this problem is close to home for you. Yeah, Slick, as we move forward into December, and we remember what happened on December 7th, 1941. I would offer to also take a look at what happened on December 8th, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor. All five bases that we had in the first island chain in the Philippines were attacked. 50% of our combat capability in the Pacific was lost in the first opening salvo of conflict. And the result of that is airmen had to launch for survival, and they retrograded to areas as far as Darwin, Australia. And we can all read what happened throughout the next few years of that in our warfare history, but the bottom line is airmen had to fly a lot longer distances and the sortie duration that was required to win back islands and fight and win for years came at a cost, right? So the Pacific certainly comes with its own challenges, the tyranny of distance and basing options. And as we are pivoting towards agile combat employment, it's actually a really exciting time to be in the Air Force because we're seeing movement on that. I've witnessed a mindset shift and getting after that problem. So I'm taking a look at that as a fellow here at the Mitchell Institute of just longer sortie duration and what that entails. And Slick, and having a, a fair amount of experience doing agile combat employment and then spending some time in Korea, I think one of the big things that the Pacific is going to be learning to maneuver while still generating air power and, and generating air power under attack. So some aspects that are probably going to be key, managing our signatures as we're moving around, executing mission command. So teaching younger leaders to recognize opportunity, use discipline initiative, and then accept prudent risk. So understanding what risks should be accepted at what time and at what level. And we just had Mr. Lawhead here at Mitchell a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about what he called the triumvirate of agile combat employment, logistics under attack, and base defense. I think from a fighter pilot perspective, the agile combat employment piece is going to be the big difference from what we've seen in the past. And really it's going back to what the United States Air Force did or the Army Air Corps did during World War II. How do we maneuver around while continuing to generate air power and then being used to doing that while we don't have air superiority and while we aren't at a large safe base with endless logistics? Well, guys, what about what we've seen in Ukraine? I'm guessing those circumstances make a pretty compelling case, not just for air power, but you know, for fifth gen, given survivability concerns and the need to just collect as much information in the battle space as we can. Yeah, I, I'll speak to 
just what I've seen on the news every day, like everybody else, I think we'll look back on this as a air power history lesson of what happens when an air force can't deliver air superiority. What happens when an air force can't deliver effective seed? And what happens when an air force can't be decisive in the battle space? And I think we're seeing that now. Yeah, as F has said, air superiority is absolutely important and it really enables the entire joint force. So we're always going to want to be able to kill targets at range, kill targets with precision, and have the assets airborne in the force package to be able to mitigate the factor of threats as well. So I think, as I've said, it's going to be a, a big lesson going forward, and we'll, we'll show the importance of some of the tactics and the, the procedures that we've followed for decades. Yeah, I absolutely could not agree more. I think the fact that we are so air power focused and, and it's really going to be needed is really important for the audience to take away. And normally with having two fighter pilots like you guys on the show, we would wrap this up with flying stories, but we've really chatted about a lot of important stuff so far. So we're going to table some flying stories and have you guys back for a couple episodes over the holiday break so we really can just get into it hear about some of the uh, most exciting and I'm sure amazing experiences that you guys have both had in the cockpit. So I can't say thanks enough for you guys spending your time with us today. And I hope you have a great Thanksgiving and we will see you here back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, Slick, thank you. Thanks for letting me be part of the team here with the podcast. And it's a pleasure to be part of Mitchell. And I look forward to sharing some stories with you soon. Happy holidays to you and the family and to all the listeners out there. And thanks, Slick. Yeah, it's neat after uh, listening for a couple of years to be able to be on the podcast. I really appreciate that. Want to shout out to all the guys downrange and girls downrange. Thank you for what you're doing. Have a great Thanksgiving and thank you for getting the mission done while the rest of us are back home. So we really appreciate that, Tech. Chat soon. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.